I'm just happy to see most of you persevered through the end of the world on Friday. That's great. You were the, you were the lucky ones. Uh, and as far as, by the way, getting their due respect, the Mayan civilization, you know, might as well pack it in for about a decade. <laughs> Having said that, though, there was some legitimate, albeit largely secret fear. Did you notice that? Kind of leading up to Friday. And people did get a little bit nervous. And frankly, you know, this Christmas season has had a unique feel to it. Has it not? It's just been a little bit different. And usually it's just all tinsel and lights, but there's been, I feel like, sort of a foreboding, uh, ominous kind of cloud hanging over this holiday season. And in all seriousness, in large part, this is because of the tragic uh, slaughter of, of 26 persons in Newtown, Connecticut, just over a week ago, 20 small boxes put in the ground this past Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And I think uh, this particular tragedy has especially touched many of us here, in part because it took place in a landmass that's just geographically so close just to the north of us, but uh, mostly because it's just senseless violence towards children, six, seven, eight years old. And of course, it's, it's not the only place this has occurred. It takes place in, in far-reaching places like, like Syria, or in the midst of a raging civil war. UNICEF has estimated that over 500 children have been killed. And those are just the numbers through February of 2012. Another 400 children there have been reportedly arrested and tortured in Syrian prisons. So whether it's Syria, whether it's somewhere else I haven't even mentioned, whether it's uh, Connecticut in elementary school, young lives cut short by wicked people choosing violent evil. In last week's Washington Post, Sally Quinn wrote a piece that headlined that newspaper, and it opened this way. I have just one question today. Where was God? She went on to say, our president responded, the majority of those who died today were children. They had their entire lives ahead of them. May God bless the memory of the victims and in the words of the scripture, heal the brokenhearted and bind up their wounds. But, Quinn goes on to write, Why would God bless the memory of victims when the all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful God allowed or even made this happen? And if He isn't any of these things, all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, why do we thank Him? Why do we pray to Him? Why do we ask Him to bless these children? Either He is or He is not. This question cuts right to the very character of God. And let me say, both as a pastor, but more so as a human being, it is a fair question. It is a fair question. Where was God? In fact, a reporter once asked this question to someone far more qualified to respond than I am. Uh, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, who spent 45 years ministering to the poorest of the poor in India's slums and established the missionaries of charity to ensure 
the work would continue long after she couldn't. I have known little of the suffering and evil of preventable death. She saw it every day. So a reporter once asked her, where is God when a baby dies alone in a Calcutta alley? To which she responded, God is there suffering with the baby. The question really is, where are you? Mother Teresa makes a bold statement here about the character of God. Him as being there with a helpless child. What gives her the confidence to say this about an otherwise invisible and often mysterious God? That's what we're going to consider together this morning. God does not shy away, but has spoken up in the midst of suffering. Even specific kinds of suffering like that of children. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, with me to Matthew chapter 2, and we'll see just that. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler." who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And when he rose, he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who are two years old or under, 
according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and they went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus, who was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. And what was spoken by the prophets was fulfilled, that he might be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, don't, thank you that you don't shy away from the reality of evil and suffering, but you speak into it. And we ask that your presence would be here with us now to continue to speak into it. Please do, in Jesus' name. Amen. Through everything here surrounding the birth of the God-man, Jesus Christ, God tells us three things about himself here in Matthew 2. Actually, four things. We'll have time for three of them this morning. And taking these three truths about God into consideration and weighing them against the alternatives of how we deal with evil and suffering, I believe they tell us why Mother Teresa had the confidence to say, God is there. Suffering with the child. First of all, He is the God who enters into the total human experience. That's the first thing we see. He is the God who enters into the total human experience, including vulnerability to suffering, vulnerability to pain, vulnerability to violence. Consider first, though, the physical act alone of what God does here. The God of space and time physically enters into a human body. All right, this of itself is amazing. I mean, think elephants into spandex. Right? I mean, that is what we're talking about here. The God of eternity, past, present, and future, becomes not only a man, but a tiny, seven-pound, four-ounce kind of baby. This is what theologians call the incarnation. And as significant of a miracle is, is the resurrection, and as significant a sacrifice is the cross. So is the incarnation. C.S. Lewis, in fact, quipped very well about the sacrifice that God made in becoming man. He said, if you wish to get the hang of it, imagine what it would be to inhabit the body of a slug or a lobster or a crab. I mean, just really, truly, imagine that for a moment. Now, it'd be kind of cool at first to get that perspective until around breakfast time, right? When you're like, how do I, where's the fridge? Yeah, yeah, I don't have, I don't have hands. (laughs) The God who enters into the total human experience is unique to Christianity. Among all religions, it is unique to Christianity. 
There's a form of Hinduism called Vaishnava Hinduism that comes close and that has ten appearances of God Vishnu to mankind. But even they are just that, appearances. No other God fully crosses over to the other side. And when he does cross over, he does not take it easy on himself. Rather, he is immediately born into vulnerability and into violence. And vulnerability to that violence. As we read, starting in verse 16 through 18 here. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem. And all that region who were two years old and younger, according to the time that had been ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled, was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping, loud lamentation. Scholars estimate that in the small village of Bethlehem at this time, boys two years old and younger numbered between about 12 and 30. There are about between 12 and 30 boys of that age in this village. And when I read those numbers, I knew I, as much as I wanted to, uh, couldn't preach on shepherds and angels as I planned, but I think God wants to say something in the midst of current violence and tragedy. Just those numbers. Jesus is between 6 and 20 months old at this time. That's why Herod targeted this age group. And because he's this age, he does not have super baby strength. Everything, all this could crumble history with Herod's maniacal violence. But God doesn't make a different plan because God does not exempt himself from the worst of life. Targeted violence, assassinating violence to a baby. Imagine that as you have kids. Someone targeting your baby. Great playwright Dorothy Sayers put it so brilliantly when she said, for whatever reason God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to the sorrows and death, he, God, he had the honesty and the courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he is playing with his creation, he has kept his own rules and he has played fair. Isn't that amazing? He he can exact nothing from man that he has not exacted from himself. He has himself gone through the whole of human experience. From the trivial irritations of family life and the cramping restrictions of hard work and lack of money to the worst horrors of pain Humiliation, defeat, despair, and death. He is a God, I love that, right? Who took his own medicine and the worst of it. He's entered into the total human experience. Secondly, he is the God who allows evil to grow alongside righteousness. To grow up alongside righteousness. One of the enigmatic aspects of this school shooting happened not nine days ago is that the gunman was by all accounts sane 
No investigative reporters, psychologists, the coroner have exhausted themselves trying to identify some separating or distinguishing quality, right? Why him? Nothing has turned up other than he was quiet and had uh, Asperger's syndrome, which has no discernible link to violence or lack of empathy. Nothing to distinguish him from this moment in time. Let's look together at the characters leading up to violence here in Matthew chapter 2. Look with with me, if you will. Verses 1 through 4. Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. And behold, the wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod and the king heard this, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So we have two groups of characters here. First we have these wise men, or these magi, or literally magoi in the Greek. Who were these people? Who were they? We sing songs about them, kind of think about them. Several centuries earlier, Magoi was a term used for this priestly caste of Medes and Persians, people from the East who enjoyed uh, special powers to interpret dreams. You actually see this in the book of Daniel referred to them. But in later centuries, up to New Testament times, this term loosely covered a wider spectrum of men interested in dreams and astrology magic. Many of them were rogues and charlatans, right? Shysters. So compare them for a moment, if you would, to Herod, king of the Jews, a man familiar with Jewish customs and scriptures, and lump him with these religious leaders themselves of the Jewish people. These people who were looking forward in Jerusalem, to the coming of the Messiah. One who would save and rescue them. They were intimately acquainted with the Scripture that foretold and described this Savior, this Messiah, this Rescuer. So take these groups of people, these two groups. Who between these two sets is more likely to receive and love and recognize and worship The King of Kings, Jesus. And yet, it is the magic men from the East. These strange and mysterious men who come to worship Jesus. Who rejoice exceedingly. Who come and they offer the precious gifts that they have. And not only Herod, but all Jerusalem. Which is a clear reference here, by the way, to the religious leaders. The people in power, the religious leaders, they're the ones who are troubled at Jesus' arrival. By juxtaposing these two characters, these two sets of characters, and surprising us with the outcome of who would worship Jesus, God, through Matthew, is telling us something quite important about why he allows evil to grow up alongside righteousness. Something about how people can change 
and to withhold our limited, finite judgments as human beings. Jesus tells a parable to make these similar points later on in Matthew, Matthew chapter 13. I want to read that for us here, starting in verse 24. Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat, and he went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? And he said to them, Enemy has come and done this. So the servants said to them, Well, wait a minute. Then do you want us to go and gather them? In other words, you know, gather up the wheat and get it away from these weeds. But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the harvest time, I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn, into my house. We learn a few things here, three things, I think, from this parable. One, ultimate judgment now, ultimate judgment now would speed up God's patience that might otherwise lead some people to change. If we were to take people out of life now, it might speed up God's patience that might otherwise lead some to change. It would allow some to grow into or show themselves to be wheat, to be righteous, 2 Peter 3.9 puts it this way. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. As some would count slowness, His promise here of judgment. But He is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, that all should go from a life of saying no to God to a life that trusts Him and says yes to God. That's repentance. So ultimate judgment would speed up God's patience that might lead otherwise to change. But here's the second thing. Yet, ultimate judgment will come. And that's extremely important. It will come. Even though God is patient, harvest time always arrives in its appointed time. God is patient, but those who persist in evil will pay. We can have confidence there will come a time. Something else we learn here about wheat and weeds, something I learned this week, actually. The grain or, or darnel, what they call it, of, of wheat and weeds look identical. They look identical, that, you know, the top part, until the grain ripens. At which point, the grain of a weed turns black as opposed to yellow. And if eaten, it tastes bitter. It sometimes even causes dizziness, it, even sickness. This is important, right? Hopefully you can make the correlation here. At what point do you know? Right? At what point do you really know? At what point do you know when someone turns from sort of good enough or not too evil to intolerably evil? We are not equipped, friends, to judge 
what evil is too evil? We don't do the reaping. I mean, look at Herod, for instance, here in verses 8 through 9. Read this with me real quick here. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, this is the wise men, go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come to worship them. After listening to the king, they went on their way. The wise men were ill-equipped to discern. They had to know from a dream. They were ill-equipped to discern if Herod had crossed the line from being, you know, kind of evil, you know, kind of worldly, wicked, and to hell-bent on destruction and keeping power for himself. They didn't know. But they were wise men. Likewise, let me just try this. with. Let me give you a spectrum and ask each of you to judge. Okay? Um, at what point should this person that I'm going I'm to show you here, this person be judged no longer deserving of life because of evil? I'm going to use uh, just cursing as an example. Using, you know, profanity, cursing, Ephesians 4, 29 says, no, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. If you know Jesus, he calls you not. Let unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. But it sometimes happens. <laughs> All right, so let's look at this. All right, here's the person who, here's the beginning of the spectrum. Who, someone who occasionally curses. I'm gonna, again, I'm going to ask you, what point should this person be just deserving of having his life removed? Occasionally curses. Goes on. That sometimes happens when hearts get hardened. Regular cursing and profanity-laced conversations. Okay, just a little more. Maybe he's talking among guys. Regular cursing at people who anger him. All right, he gets mad, starts to curse at people. Maybe underneath his breath. Go further on the spectrum. Now remember, you need, you need to tell me when. Curses at those closest with him. Right, including a spouse. Now let's keep going. Now, he, now he's using cursing to hurt people who are otherwise kind, who are otherwise vulnerable with him. Now he's, he's cursing. He's using words to intimidate and manipulate people. Now he's cursing at people who are defenseless against the children, those who have a history of abuse in their life, including emotional abuse, those under his authority, under his thumb. Now? What about now? And then he goes on. Now he's influencing others. Influencing other people to wage wars of hate with their words. So now it's spreading. Not only from himself, but to others. Until he joins with others to systematically hate groups of people with his words. Alright, now... The hate is spread, the, the, the anger and the cursing is spread with his words to targeted groups of people. We see this through groups like the Ku Klux Klan, the neo-Nazis. What about there? Now he's organizing and leading others to hate groups with words which lead to action, causing destruction, violence, and ultimately death. At what point... Would you judge that person out of his life? Where do you land? There seems, there's, there's ruin and destruction. How much is too much? And yet, many of us have cursed. I'm guessing if we voted on this, 
Every point there would be represented if we voted. My point in having us think through this is that God alone knows people's hearts. God alone can best judge when to exercise radical, generous patience and when to exercise certain and ultimate judgment. That's why he allows evil to grow alongside righteousness. As a second point, number three, see here in the events surrounding the birth of Jesus is that he is a God who has a plan that incorporates evil and suffering. Doesn't exclude it, doesn't ignore it, but incorporates evil and suffering. We see this in verses 5 and 6, and on verse 15, verses 18, and verse 23 are all what we call prophecies. And if you're newer to the Bible, uh, let me explain the significance of this. In the Old Testament, hundreds of years before the coming of Christ, God would speak to his people through the prophets. People speaking, and when they would write down God's authoritative words, they were usually instructions and exhortations for how to return, how to be faithful, how to love God again, according to his covenant. They were just kind of spurring people on back to God, back to God. But mixed into these exhortations were often predictions about God's plan for the future, usually offering hope sprinkled with a dash of, of pain. And we have four of these kinds of future predictions here in, in Matthew, demonstrating a hoped-for plan, most of these prophecies, sprinkled with pain. And here they're coming to fruition in the birth of Jesus Christ. But we do see, and I want to make sure we don't ignore it, the pain part of it. Three out of the four prophecies here, generally pretty encouraging. But verse 18 stands out in response to the killing of these children. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, Rachel was always idealized. She was an Old Testament figure, always idealized as the tender mother figure of Israel. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So we see the pain here in God's plan. All the way back from the book of Jeremiah, written 500 years before. God's plan, a couple things here. God's plan means that specific pain is not a surprise to him. I mean, we're talking 500 years before. It's predicted. It's not a surprise to him. So when something bad even horrific happens, as here in Matthew, God is not surprised. We don't have to worry that it's some accident, that he's not in charge. He's not, he and the rest of the Trinity don't hold an emergency meeting. Right? Because, oh, you know, things messed up, guys. Right? Holy Spirit, where were you on this? A scripture that people, not just Christians, often turn to for comfort in hard times is Jeremiah 29.11. You may have heard it before. It says this, God is speaking and he says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for wholeness and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. But what we often don't look into is the context into which these words are uttered. The ver- literally just the verse before, Jeremiah 29.10. Listen to this, For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I'll fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Let me help you understand this. Jeremiah is speaking, the people of Judah. Judah was being shipped off 
to a foreign land to become slaves for 70 years. They had persistently said no, no, no to God and rebelled against him. So God says, I need to get your attention. I'm going to ship you off to this land. You're going to be slaves for 40 years, 70 years. 70 years. That means many people who heard these words, I know the plans I have for you, plans for wholeness, would die as slaves in a foreign land. I have a plan for you. I have a plan for wholeness. You're going to die, some of you will die in a foreign land. What that means is God's plans to make you whole and complete as a person may be an alternate future than what you would choose. God's plan means that specific pain is not a surprise to him. Also, God plans with the wisdom of a parent. He plans with the wisdom of a parent. It's hard, and even as harsh as it might sound, some of us, indeed most of us, cannot grow without suffering. I know that can sound callous. As C.S. Lewis once put it, suffering is God's megaphone to a deaf world. In some cases, friends, we've grown hardened, often grow self-sufficient, so much so that the best way to get our complete attention and our complete trust and dependence in God is through hard things. Writer, philosopher, and, and human being Nicholas Wolterstorff lost his 25-year-old son in a mountaineering accident. So he can, he can speak from an experience that think, the Lord, I cannot. Weeks after this accident, he wrote that he had been deeply changed by the tragedy and changed for the better. But Walter Storff also spoke honestly for those who grieved like him when he cried. But without a moment's notice, without a moment's hesitation, I would exchange those changes to have Eric back. He went on to go, he went on to talk about how we would not have the strength to choose this path. Even if we knew it was for our good, we would not have the strength to choose it to be too terrible. But God is a wise parent, and he's choosing what we could never choose. Giving us what we need, not what we think we want. Friends, there will be stories that emerge from the ashes of tragedies like this one in Connecticut. People deeply changed, though they never would have chosen that path themselves. And we can thank God that equally in his plan, he provides all the resources necessary to meet otherwise unbearable challenges. He gives companionship of his presence in the Holy Spirit. He gives the companionship of fellow Christians and sufferers through his church. He provides truth in his word to give voice to and to eventually shape our pain. He provides protection from evil forces. Natural, human, demonic, which would seek to cause total ruin in our lives. And he provides the hope of heaven when all the pain and evil and suffering will one day be righted. When Jesus Christ grows up, there's some people who rush to tell him some disturbing news, quite similar to that of the Bethlehem slaughter that he was born into. I want to share this with you. Luke 13, 1 through 3. There were some present at the time who told Jesus about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Same kind of situation here. Powerful figure, 
powerful government figure disturbed, troubled at the worship of another power. People are worshiping at the altar of another God, not at his feet. So he slaughters them. And he answered them, Jesus did, do you think that these Galileans, the ones who died, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Jesus' response is interesting on two levels. Number one, he says in the midst of tragedy that a personal response is required. Some personal response is required. Kind of like Mother Teresa said, where where are you? What are you doing? Jesus here assumes that the Galileans have not trusted in God's Savior himself, Jesus Christ. And so he says, look, you will face a similar destiny if you don't look at your own life and see your need for God and turn to him for help. Personal response should happen in the midst of tragedy. Secondly, we see here is that these people, these Galileans, their sins, their actions didn't cause violence upon them. But Jesus never says they aren't sinners. Do you notice that? In fact, he actually, they're just not worse sinners. The sin didn't, their specific sin didn't bring about the tragedy. They're just not worse sinners. Look, there was a gunman who had both righteousness and evil growing side by side in his life, but he didn't respond. He didn't repent. He didn't turn to God. He didn't identify the evil and search for a Savior. Friends, inside your own heart, yours and mine, evil grows alongside righteousness. Do you recognize the danger of that evil? The secret lusts, the double life, the living for applause and the approval of others, the the living for comfort and self-pleasure, the pride that comes from doing life pretty well or at least better than most. Do you recognize it there? It will keep growing unless you respond. In 1908, the London Times asked a number of authors to respond to the question, what's wrong with the world? Author and Christian G.K. Chesterton, his response was no doubt the shortest of the lot. He simply wrote, Dear Sir, regarding your article, What's Wrong with the World? I am. Yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. Chesterton recognized the first step in solving the problem of evil was recognizing the evil within And he did something about it. He trusted his life to Jesus who alone can forgive evil and begin to clean up the mess inside of us. Chesterton responded to evil. Will you?